Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if you need to, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we can come together this evening and we can study your word, that we can better understand the spiritual life, the dynamics of spiritual growth, that we may continue to press on towards spiritual maturity. Father, we thank you that we have your word, that it is a lamp unto our feet that enables us to see how to live, that enables us to understand the issues of life. And Father, let us not take for granted that which you have given to us. We have such a rare privilege compared to most believers over the centuries to have our own personal possession of the completed canon of Scripture. Father, as we study this evening, we pray that you'd help us to uh, understand these things and to focus, concentrate, that God the Holy Spirit would challenge us in our own spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as most of you know, I got back from Kiev on Friday afternoon. Uh, none the worse for wear, despite the fact that I uh, contracted tonsillitis while I was there. And everybody keeps saying, well, why don't you have those tonsils out? Well, you talk to the doctors. I've been trying to get tons- these tonsils ripped out for 35 years, and they won't do it. And a lot of people were coming down with it. A couple of the people who worked for Jim had it, and several students contracted it. And the antibiotics that I, uh, that I started taking over there initially kicked it, enough to get me through the last three or four days of teaching, and then on the way back it came back on me, and we had to go through another, get some penicillin going the other day. So Dr. Cooper back there is keeping me, trying to keep me healthy. But um, it was a good, uh, good trip. I taught on judgment, crowns, and rewards for the students, and so we covered a lot of passages that are very familiar to everybody here. And then in the evening study and in church uh, on Sunday morning and on Wednesday night, I taught on the value and significance of the Bible. We went through a number of different things related to Scripture. So all in all, it was a good conference. There was one family that um, had enough positive volition to get to Kiev for Bible class. We wondered where the rest of y'all were. So we had a good time, the Tebos made it over there, the whole family, and they spent the second week there in Kiev. So that was, uh, that was fun, gave them a fresh uh, insight into what missionaries do and what missions is all about. And that's really, I, I, as I thought about it, I said, you know, that would be great for everybody to, to do something like that. As a matter of fact, next summer they're going, they haven't done this for three years now because of the expense but this summer they're going to uh, try to have another camp for kids during the summer. And this is a great opportunity to do a lot of evangelism to reach uh, kids that aren't church. The focus is not to get kids who are going to church somewhere and already have uh, some you know, knowledge of the gospel and, and are probably saved, but to get kids who aren't to go to these camps. And two or three years ago I sent... A uh, group of about four went from Preston City Bible Church and had a tremendous time. And so they're going to run another camp this summer. And Jim was saying, well, announce it, see if there's anybody who wants to come, see if you can get some volunteers who want to come over and help out uh, for the summer. So if anybody's interested in doing that, uh, you can talk to me about that later. 
I will give a more complete report on Thursday night with pictures so that y'all can see everything. Uh, since I was there last year, they bought a new uh, facility, which is a tremendous place, a lot better than what they had before. It's about twice the size of what they had before. So that's that's just the Lord's provision. Well, this evening we're continuing what we've been studying as a topical study out from the life of Joseph. And as we went through Genesis, and we've been looking at this beginning stage in I guess we were in around Genesis chapter 42 or 43, and I got to talking about what happened with Judah because there's such a uh, tremendous shift in the life of Judah that takes place from the way we first see Judah as someone who has absolutely no positive volition. He's assimilating to the Canaanites. He marries a Canaanite wife. There's all these other uh, problems there, and he is a prime mover in selling Joseph into slavery. But by the time we get to chapter 42 and 43, there's a major change that's taken place in his life. And I'm focusing on that key concept of change because that's really the whole goal of the Christian life is for us to change. And we can only change under the power of the Holy Spirit because the Christian life is a supernatural life and can be lived only under the power and direction of God the Holy Spirit on the basis of the Word of God. And there's so much confusion, there seems, ongoing confusion about just how all of this relates to to one another. I mean, it's just amazing, and several of us have been been talking over the last couple of years of how as the last three, four decades have gone by, it seems like Christians become more and more confused and divided and fragmented over all these areas, the gospel. And now we have people coming along saying, well, if you haven't believed in Christ for eternal life, then you haven't really believed. You have others coming along and saying that uh, you don't need to confess your sin. Of course, there's always been groups that did that, but that you don't need to confess your sins. You have others that come along and say, well, confession really isn't enough. You have to uh, you have to repent as well. And a lot of confusing things going on. And one of the questions that's come up is, what really are the dynamics for change? And so the last couple of sessions before I left, we went through various passages dealing with what the Bible teaches about confession. And the last time, if you remember, and can reach back in those cobwebs about three weeks, I came in and instead of using the typical PowerPoint presentation like I've been doing, I used the Lagos program and put up on the screen the actual lexicons and other study tools that are available to try to show what is said and teach a little discernment and how we can develop critical thinking skills. Just because someone who was a highly respected theologian in a lot of areas says something doesn't make it so. You have to go in and look at their at the background. There are things that I've read people say that, well, uh, Lewis Berry Chafer says in his systematic theology certain things or in he that is spiritual certain things, and, and um, they weren't quite right. Uh, most people don't realize this, but Dr. Chafer has an, has an extended discussion. And I, it's his, I think it's his volume in Christology. It's been years since I've read it. Defending the view that John the Baptist's baptism was by sprinkling. Well, that's because Dr. Chafer was a good Presbyterian. And, you know, it was just, it was extremely flawed. And there are other areas that there just been better studies since then. But overall, it's an excellent systematic theology, and he was a very good teacher in a lot of areas. But, uh, you know, people come along in 20, 30 years and say, well, you know, Robbie Dean made a mistake here, and that's probably true, and made a lot of mistakes over here, and that's probably true. We build and build and build from generation to generation, and each group gets a little tighter focus on some things and a little clarification. And so that's how the whole progress of the church has been for 2,000 years in understanding various doctrines. We understand things today that were unclear uh, two generations ago or even uh, or three or four hundred years ago, I think this whole issue that's developed over lordship salvation versus free grace in just the last 
uh, 25 years has brought a lot of clarity for a lot of people. I remember when I was in seminary wrestling with different problem passages that are part of this, the Hebrews warning passages and John 15, the abiding in Christ, different things like that. And you would hear uh, people that would teach on these passages and they would teach one verse and then they teach another verse, and you just there was something about it that just wasn't satisfying. And you said, "No, nah, they really haven't clarified this yet." I remember sitting down in my study when I was teaching the Gospel of John and wrestling with John 15 about eight or nine years ago when I was up, first went up to Preston, and I was listening to Charlie Clough teaching on John 15. And on verse one verse, he taught it like it was lordship. The next verse, he taught it like it was free grace. The next verse, it was like lordship. See, that was the problem, is that back in 19, whenever that was, 72 or 73, when Charlie taught that, and others taught that, these issues weren't crystallized yet. And sometimes it's only in the context of a little controversy that we begin to tighten our focus and go back and look at things from a fresh perspective and get some clarity that we might not have had had earlier. So that's what I'm doing here in looking at this whole issue of confession. And I want to look at confession, forgiveness, and its relationship to repentance, just exactly what is repentance. Repentance is one of those biblical words that has been so abused and misused and overused by so many people down through uh, the centuries that it's a word that people use like holy. They think they know what it means, but they really don't have a clue. And they use it in, in, in ways that aren't biblical. The Bible doesn't use, them, use this word in the ways that many people use them today. And when you come to translations, I know that when I went to... Uh, Kazakhstan many years ago with Jim back in 2000 and when I've been working over the years in, in, uh, with the students over there dealing with the Russian Bible, the Russian translation translates confess with the word, with the Russian word remorse and feeling sorry for, so you've got to deal with these kinds of, of issues and in fact if you look at an English dictionary on words like repentance and confession, that indeed is within the semantic range of those words in English. So there's just, you can really get confused. And, and if you're uh, not sharp and haven't developed good uh, analysis tools for this, then you can get yourself in some real trouble. So let's just deal with a couple of uh, introductory comments. There are several responses to dealing with the question of how Christians are supposed to handle sin after salvation. You may not realize this, but in the early church, and I'm talking about not the apostolic period, but the the period following the apostles, which is called in church history the apostolic fathers. And so this is the period from roughly 95 to 100 uh, A.D. up to about uh, 250, 300, that period in there known as the time of the apostolic fathers. And during that time, they were confusing baptism with salvation and the need to be literally washed of your sins. And so if you read a lot of the apostolic fathers, you wonder how anybody got saved in the first three centuries after Christ because nobody has a crisp presentation of the gospel. It got lost very quickly. And yet I believe God in His grace is so magnificent that even though we confuse things and get things all cluttered up and don't say it just the right way, God knows that people are putting their reliance upon Jesus Christ alone for salvation and they're looking to Him alone for salvation, whether they pray the wrong prayer or say the wrong words or whatever. God is, looks on the heart and knows what somebody's trusting in uh, for salvation. And you look at what was going on in that period of time with their view of baptism, there were a lot of people who didn't want to get baptized uh, because uh, until they died because if you sinned after you were baptized, then you had problems trying to figure out how God was going to forgive you of those sins. And so people would wait until right before they died before they'd get baptized, and then they could go into heaven. Then, of course, you had the development of the whole 
penitential system that developed in Roman Catholic theology where you had to do penance for certain sins and then there was the development of the uh, different categories of, of sins, mortal sins and venal sins and all this other uh, legalistic uh, religious works system that developed in Roman Catholicism. That's really the first major response to what you do with uh, post-salvation sin is that after salvation, sin, uh, sin has to be dealt through remorse and penance. And this is the extreme view. But you see, even in, in among conservative evangelicals, you get a lighter view of that where you have to have, well, in some sense, you have to have a sincere confession or a genuine confession or a real confession of sin. You'll see, once again, these adjectives. Now, some of you are pretty sharp, and you're already seeing a few light bulbs go off because this is the same problem that you have with the gospel. You have the lordship crowd that has a problem with um, with what they call easy believism which is what, how they would characterize our understanding of the gospel, that you only trust in Christ. Christ did everything at the cross. All we have to do is trust in him. And so we don't add anything, but the, the lordship crowd will say, well, you know, you have to have genuine faith in Christ. You have to have uh, sincere faith. You have to have saving faith. They add all these adjectives to, to faith in order to distinguish real saving faith from non-saving faith. They actually believe that you can have a faith in Jesus that doesn't save. And that's not, not biblical at all. You don't have adjectives in the Scripture to the word faith. So you have different views, different extremes of the legalistic position that is adding something uh, in order to get forgiveness of sin after salvation. Then you have the licentious crowd at the, at the other end of the spectrum. So you go from the legalistic crowd to the licentious crowd. The licentious crowd is, well, Jesus paid for all the sins, so it doesn't matter what I do. Sins are paid for over and out. I don't need to confess sins. I don't need to uh, repent, using it biblically. I don't need to do anything. I just need to just keep right on trucking, and everything's just going to be uh, just fine and dandy. And you have various degrees of that licentious uh, position. You have some that aren't really licentious. They just say, no, you don't need to confess your sin. You just keep uh, doing what the Bible says to do. And there are, most of you probably aren't aware of this, but there's about ten different, at best, ten different models of the spiritual life out there. You've got a Roman Catholic model, you've got a Lutheran model, you've got a Reformed Presbyterian model, you have dispensational model, you have a charismatic model, a Wesleyan model, a holiness model, all these different views of how you live the Christian life. And as Dr. Walbert pointed out in a book called The Five Views of Sanctification, and they only focused on five, that what distinguishes our view from every other view is the importance of confession of sin and walking by the Spirit. There has to be a recovery that you're either walking by the flesh or you're walking by the Spirit. And these are two absolutes. There are other views that will recognize parts of that, but it's basically just to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, uh, spirituality. Just do what the Bible says. Read your Bible, go to church, witness to people, do all these things. That's spirituality. So what distinguishes us from anybody else is this understanding of absolutes that you're either walking by the Spirit, walking by the flesh, and the only way to move from walking by the flesh back to walking by the Spirit is to confess your sins, which means to admit, acknowledge your sins. Well, what all is involved in that? And some people say, well, you know, there's people who just flippantly confess their sin. They just, oh, well, God, I was just angry. You know, there's no real sense of thought. There's no real... Concentration. Well, how much thought do you have to put into it? How sincere is sincere enough? How genuine is genuine? I mean, they don't answer these questions, but it sounds good. People recognize there is a problem. There are people out there who, and we've all done this, if we're honest, and I think this is typical of any baby believer, is that, that we misuse and abuse the grace of God, and we use 1 John 1, 9 licentiously until we've, as, a, as a license to sin, and we just... Um, or not quite, but almost to the point of planning the next sin while we're confessing the last one. Now, we've all done that. 
but we, you know, sooner or later we realize we can't. So that's kind of the licentious view. And the third way to handle sin after salvation is the, the view I just articulated that we confess or admit or acknowledge our sins to God and we're, we're forgiven at that point. Now, the problem, another problem we run into here is that there are various blends and mixes of these positions. I've just outlined the three, three positions in sort of stark contrast, but there's all kinds of, I mean, we live in a period of time where we have smorgasbord spirituality, cafeteria spirituality, cafeteria churches where people say, well, I want my own view of Christian life. So I'm going to go over here and I'm going to borrow this from the Presbyterians. I'm going to borrow this from Calvin. I'm going to borrow this from Wesley. I'm going to borrow this from the dispensationalists. And I'm just going to mix it all up and come up with my own blend. And that's just part of postmodernism. Nobody wants to exegete the scriptures. They just want to go out and, and pick and choose things that make them feel comfortable and that make sense to them rather than, uh, than studying the, the scriptures. So we have to uh, do some anal- analysis on this. Now, one of the things that people that is being said recently that I've heard is that you need to repent before you confess sin. Or the, 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 some would say, well, the very act of confession itself indicates a change of mind or repentance. Let's take a man who's involved in some sort of deception and he's, he's involved in a whole series of lies and everything. And suddenly he realizes that, you know, this is wrong. His conscience gets the best of him. And he realizes that he's involved in sin and deception. And so he confesses. Well, he has changed his mind, hasn't he? He was all in favor of a certain course of action, lying. And now he's decided that's wrong. He changes his mind. He confesses his sin. So some people will say, well, see, that's repentance. He repented before he confessed. Trouble is, you never have the word repentance used that way in the scriptures. And this is a problem that we've got and why people get so confused is we start coming along and we start taking biblical words and using them in non-biblical ways. And then everybody gets all confused. Next thing you know, you've got your own little quasi-cult going. So we have to stick with biblical words the way the Bible uses them. And the Bible clearly uses repentance to mean a change of mind or a change of thinking. That is its core semantic value, as they say. That's the, that's the popular lingo today in dealing with word studies. That's its core semantic, semantic values. It means to change your mind. Context and other things may uh, indicate different aspects of that, but the core idea of repentance is change of mind. But what you see in the scriptures is very little said about repentance in the epistles. And we'll go through that in detail. But I want to build this in a very logical manner. So we have to start with understanding uh, grace at the cross. Now think about grace at salvation. Jesus Christ paid it all. He didn't pay part of it. He didn't pay most of it. You don't add anything to uh, faith at salvation, and I don't mean just by baptism or going to church or going through various rituals. I mean, you don't add anything in terms of your feelings, your emotions, your attitude towards the cross. You don't try to pump up and say, okay, this is genuine, this isn't genuine. Uh, Jesus Christ uh, paid for the sins. They are truly and actually paid for. We have these prepositions of substitution that the Bible uses, prepositions like huper and peri, and they indicate that somebody actually does something for somebody else. It's not potential. It's not hypothetical. It's not, I paid this for you if you'll accept it. And I like to use the example that if I take somebody, or I see somebody I know it out, out at a restaurant, and I decide to pick up their tab. And so I go to the waiter and I say, okay, here's my credit card. Put their meal on my credit card. It's paid for. I sign. It's all done. Can that person then come to me and say, no, 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 I don't accept it. Well, if they don't accept it, they don't like it, that's fine. But it's paid for. It is truly, genuinely paid for. And when Christ enacted that, that transaction on the cross, he truly paid the sins for every human being. 
Now, that doesn't mean that every human being is going to go to heaven because three things have to happen, as I've taught, in order for people to get into heaven. First of all, the sins have to be paid for. Secondly, spiritual death has to be converted to spiritual life, regeneration. And, and third, not necessarily in this order, but third is they have to have their relative righteousness fixed because they can't get into heaven unless they have perfect righteousness. So there has to be the imputation of righteousness. Christ paid the penalty of everybody's sin. That means that you don't have a problem with the extent of the atonement anymore or anything like that because under even uh, these other ideas that it's a partial or hypothetical or conditional payment, if you don't believe that when you end up in the lake of fire, somebody's going to say, well, did Christ pay for your sins? No, he didn't. I decided not to. uh, I didn't trust him, so I didn't accept his payment, so I'm paying for him now. Well, that's limited atonement, whether you put it in front or in back or wherever you put it. Christ actually paid for sins, but that's only one one of the three things. You have to trust Christ. That's your responsibility. You have to trust Christ for uh, that he died for your sins, and at that instant you are regenerated and you receive the imputation of Christ's perfect righteousness. And that is what allows you to get into heaven. So at the great white throne judgment, people are evaluated not to see if they um, if their sins are paid for, because they are. John John three eighteen says that they're condemned because they have not believed, not because of their sin. And their works are evaluated, not just their good works, but everything they've done. Let's pile everything up and see if it's good enough to fit God's perfect standard. And those works include everything. It's not just good works. And everything piles up, and gosh, it just doesn't quite measure up to perfect righteousness. So because they've rejected God's provision, they are condemned to the lake of fire. So what grace means is that sin is fully paid for. You can't add anything to it when you trust Christ. It's just an act of faith alone in Christ alone. And that's it. And you're saved. You have eternal life. You become a member of the royal family of God, and that brings a new dimension to your relationship with God because now you're part of a family. It's not just judicial, but it is also relational. Now, the reason that's important is when we talk about confession of sin for the believer after salvation, it is uh, not just a matter of dealing with the justice of God and Uh, adjusting to the justice of God by confessing your sins, but it's also a matter of restoring a relationship, a family relationship, where we have broken the the standards of our Father. And so there's a restoration of that relationship. But restoration of a relationship and restoration of fellowship isn't the same as spiritual growth. It only puts us in a position where we can grow spiritually. We have to have that rapport with God. And this is where, I'm going to build this, but this is where you see the distinction between confession and repentance. Confession has to do with simply uh, restoring that rapport that has been broken by our own sin. But repentance has to do with the ongoing process of change that takes place within that restored relationship. So that the way the Bible uses repentance isn't as something that precedes confession, but something that comes uh, after confession. Now, we have 1 John 2.2 says that he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And there we have the Greek preposition peri, which is a uh, substitutionary preposition. It's a real substitution that he satisfied the righteousness and justice of God for everybody, not just for us. The second person plural there indicates believers, but also for the whole world. That is everyone. It is a universal propitiation. God's justice is satisfied by Jesus Christ's death for everyone. That means the price for sin, even post-salvation sin, is paid for. Now, what's interesting is the verse that comes right before that is one where John says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. See, his point is, just because you can confess your sin and get forgiveness 
doesn't mean it's okay to sin. Let's have that balance here. There is a place in the Christian life where we're supposed to deal with sin, not in terms of just confession, but in terms of not making those choices so that we can stay in fellowship, abide in Christ, continue walking by the Spirit, and grow. And this is a problem that some people have, is they think that, well, all I need to do is confess, 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 confess. And there have been those who've tried to, who've reacted to that and come up with false solutions. John's solution is, if you do sin, you're not supposed to, you ought not. It is part of the struggle of the Christian life not to sin, but to trust God. But if you do, we have an advocate with the Father, who is Jesus Christ the righteous. God is a realist. He recognizes that, on the one hand, that we are going to sin. And it's not inevitable that you're going to commit that sin. But it's inevitable that we will sin because we still have a sin nature. So God's a realist, and he's provided a grace solution. He's not winking at sin. He's not minimizing sin. He's not condoning the sin, but he's provided a recovery solution. And that is confession of sin, which we saw last time in our study of 1 John 1.9. And there I went through a lot of different uh, resources, and I showed that confession means the admission or acknowledgement of wrongdoing. That's all it means. And as we went through things, I I didn't point this out, but one of the things you should have noted from all those lexicons that we looked at is it doesn't mean to simply name or to cite. It means to admit or acknowledge. Those are different. I've heard some people say, well, all I have to do is is read God the grocery list. You know, uh, arrogance, lying, gossip, maligning. No, no, no. It's, It's an impersonal admission of wrongdoing. I did this. It's not just listing things that you did. It is a personal admission of wrongdoing. I committed uh, the sin of adultery or I committed uh, a sin of anger, pride, or gossip, or maligning. It is a personal admission of guilt. But the other thing that we saw in our study was that it doesn't involve uh, remorse it doesn't involve emotion. It is a judi- primarily a judicial term uh, indicating that you have, you're just telling God about something. We went back into the Old Testament and we looked at various different uh, passages. And one of the key ones that we looked at was in Psalm 32.5. And in Psalm 32.5, I made a real sophomoric error and looking at a couple of words here, because they're not only homonyms, which means they sound alike, which just confused me, and but they're also synonyms. So I just I just got the two words confused. You have two parts to Psalm 32:5. The first part is I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. And in the second stanza or second half of the verse explains how this acknowledgement was made. I said, I will confess my transgressions to you. Now, the two key words are are acknowledged and confess. Now, in the Hebrew, these are yada and yada. Okay, they're two different words. And I I just missed that. And both can mean confess, both can mean to make known, and both can mean declare. However, the first yada, which is translated acknowledge, is the, the root word is the verb to make known or to know something. And in that particular form, it means to make something known, to declare or acknowledge something. The second word, yada, ending with a soft hey, uh, ending, an H ending in the Hebrew, is a word that generally means to declare or to, uh, uh, its root concept is to throw or to cast, but it also refers to acknowledgement. That's its core meaning. Now, it has various, uh, indica- uh, various uses, and the primary use in the Old Testament is to declare praise to God except in the Hithiel and Hithpael stems. So, here's a quote out of 
the New International Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis. The verb primarily refers to an acknowledgement. So you see, that's why I say yada and yada are both, not only they sound alike, homonyms, but they have the same, same basic meanings. It, the basic meaning of the second yada it mean, is acknowledgement. And therefore, when it comes to sin, it is understood to be confession. Uh, the writer in this article goes on to say in Job 40:14, Yahweh ironically challenges Job to demonstrate his own power and promises to admit it if Job is able to do any of these things. So God says, I will, uh, I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. Well, once I realized this error that I had made, I started looking up the uses of this particular word and it opened up a whole new um, sort of approach that I thought I would take in understanding confession uh, in the Old Testament. So usually in the Old Testament, this writer says, quote, the acknowledgement is one of praising God. Less often it is one of sin. The praise may be of a general type, but it tends to be specific, the giving of thanks for resolution of recent crisis. So it's primarily used to talk about I'm going to declare praise, I'm going to acknowledge what God has done for me, but in a few instances it has to do with the acknowledgement of, of sin or confession. So the hiphil stem and the hithpael stem of the verb refers to acknowledging or confessing uh, sin, except for one passage, Second Chronicles uh, 30.22. Okay, let's look at some of these passages. This is really helpful to understand what confession is. We have to start by looking at the first use of this word back in Leviticus in reference to the, the guilt offering. Le, the first five chapters of Leviticus describe various offerings that, are, that, that, that become the basis for the entire Levitical system of sacrifice and worship. And in Leviticus 5.5 5 we read, And it shall be when he is guilty of any of these matters, that he shall confess. There's our word again, yada. Y, the best way to spell it is Y-A-D-A-H, for those who are just listening. Um, that he shall confess that he has sinned in that thing. Now, what are those things? Well, look at verse 1. There's a list of, of legal infractions that... If you do these, if you commit these legal infractions, notice I'm not using the word sin. If you commit one of these legal infractions, then you have to go through ceremonial cleansing and you have to bring a guilt offering into the temple and you have to sacrifice it and you have to confess what you have done. So verse 1 reads, If a person sins in hearing the utterance of an oath and is a witness, whether he has seen or known of the matter, and he does not tell it, he bears guilt. In other words, if you're a witness and to, a, to somebody swearing and you really haven't uh, been a, seen what they're swearing to, then you're guilty. Or if a person touches any unclean thing, like a grasshopper or centipede or catfish or shrimp or lobster, you know, that's unclean. So if you touch an unclean thing, now is that a sin? No, that's not a sin but it is a ceremonial violation. See, what God is showing here is that when you touch something dead, where does death come from? It comes from sin. It goes back to the curse of Genesis 3. God is reminding them that anything involved with sin separates you from God. This is why uh, when a woman gives birth, is it sinful to give birth? No, but what had to happen? Seven days after the birth, you had to go and bring a sacrifice to the temple it's for cleansing. Why? Because pain was multiplied in childbirth. So anything associated with the curse of sin was, uh, was a basis for these ceremonial uh, distinctions. And there had to be ceremonial cleansing. If any person touches the carcass of an unclean beast, the carcass of an unclean livestock, uh, you'll be unclean and guilty. Or if you touch human uncleanness, uh, then you're defiled. Verse 3. Verse 4. If a person swears, speaking thoughtlessly with his lips to do evil or to do good, in other words, to do anything, if you, if you swear that you will do something 
and uh, you pronounce an oath, and then you violate it, then you're guilty. It shall be when you're, then verse 5, it shall be if you're guilty in any of these matters, if you violate the, the ceremonial law, then you have to bring a guilt offering and you confess. Now, there's no mention of repentance. There's no mention of remorse. There's no mention that when you, when you touch that, when you're a farmer and you've got a dead, an animal died in the barn and you've got to get the carcass out of there, you're going to touch that carcass even inadvertently. You've got to bring a guilt offering to the temple and you have to confess. Now, are you going to feel guilty about that? Are you going to feel remorse? Are you going to repent and say, you know, God, please forgive me. I'm never going to do this again. No, that, that's not part of the, the semantic meaning of the word confess contextually. Okay? Now, the result of this is when you confess, verse 13 says, the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin that he has committed any of these values. Now, that word for sin has to do with violating the law. So you violated the law, but if you bring the requisite guilt offering then it will be forgiven him. Okay, now the next passage we want to look at has to do with the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16.21. And we need to pick up the context. So just turn over a few passages. Luke chapter 16 is the chapter in the Mosaic Law dealing with the Day of Atonement. And so there are various regulations that are laid down here related to the observance of the Day of Atonement, the cleansing of Aaron, how he had to be bathed, put on a special robe uh, that he could uh, go into the, into the uh, Holy of Holies. He had to present several offerings. There was a sin offering, a young bull as a sin offering, verse 3, a ram as a burnt offering. All of these were, were prescribed. But the one that we're focusing on is that he had to choose two goats, one of which would be uh, one, one of which would be for the Lord and would be killed, and the other one would be a scapegoat. Now this is the greatest picture that we have in the Old Testament of what confession is. And the other offerings have to do with related to salvation, but the uh, scapegoat offering has to do with confession. What happens is described uh, starting in about verse, let's see. Verse 20, let's just go to verse 21. And it shall, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. Now, what happens is they've, he's already, um, I was trying to find the verse, he's already done the same thing to the goat that was uh, for the Lord. And uh, this is in verse 18. He shall go out of the altar that is before the Lord, make atonement for it, shall take some of the blood of the bull, some of the blood of the goat, put it on the horns of the altar. Uh, the other goat is the sins are put on that goat. And that goat is sacrificed. And that is a picture of the payment of sin for the, I mean, the payment price for that sin. And then in verse 21, the other goat, the sins are damned. He confesses all the sins. He admits all the sins of Israel for the last year. And then they take that goat and they take it out in the wilderness and let it go. And the picture is that once you confess your sins, God separates those sins from you as far as the east is from the west. And they're completely forgotten and removed. And just as the goat is now wandering uh, loose out in the wilderness, they're no longer an issue. The fact that Aaron puts his hand on the, goat, on the head of the goat when he says this shows identification and is a picture of substitution. The goat bears the sins as a substitute for the nation. But what we're looking at here is how does confession operate here? There's no sackcloth and ashes. We need to make that point. No sackcloth and ashes. There's no mourning. There's no grieving. There's no wailing. Uh, No emotion. No remorse. No repentance. There is simply the admission of guilt. 
and all the sins that Israel has committed in the previous year. And they're put on the goat, and the goat takes, it goes out in the wilderness, and the sin is gone. This lays the foundation for understanding confession and forgiveness in the Mosaic Law and for the Old Testament. Everything else that we say from this point on has to take into account that this particular uh, sacrifice on the Day of Atonement uh, pictures what happens at, at confession. Now, the third passage in Levitic, in, uh, that we're going to look at is in Numbers 5, verse 7. Numbers 5, 7. And this has to do with sin against another person, that when you offend somebody, you uh, do something against them, you, you uh, commit some act of harm against them, then the individual that, that, that commits the sin shall confess the sin which he has committed. He shall make restitution for his trespass in full, plus one-fifth of it, and give it to the one he is wrong. Now, there's no mention here that he has to feel sorry about the fact that he did it. He just confesses. He just admits that he did it. And he has to make restitution. But he may be thinking, you know, I'm really glad I did it. But I know I have to make this restitution. So he does what he knows he should do, even though he may not feel like it. There's no sense of remorse here. There's no mention of repentance, that he's never going to do it again. Uh, There's no mention of change of mind. There's simply he admits the sin and he makes restitution. Now that indicates two separate acts. One is the admission and one is something consequent to that, which is uh, making the restitution. They're not identical. The the, uh, confession is not incomplete without the restitution. Okay, fulfilling the law would be incomplete, but there's two separate acts is what I'm trying to get across. One is the confession. And the second act is the restitution. Now, he's not going to fulfill the law unless he does both of those things. But they're not the same thing. Restitution isn't part of the confession. It's a separate act. It's part of fulfilling the law, but it's a separate act. Confession is one thing. Making the restitution uh, is the other. Now, let's go to Leviticus 26. Now, this is a... Crucial passage to understand the there are several prayers of confession later on in the Old Testament, but they are grounded on this particular passage in Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26 is where you find the five uh, stages or the five cycles of discipline. Something that we're all we've all studied before. Something we're all familiar with is that God told Israel that if, if you obey the law, I'm going to bless you and prosper you in the land. If you disobey the law, if you get involved in idolatry, if you're disobedient, then I'm going to bring uh, increasingly severe uh, stages or cycles of judgment on the nation, ending with the most severe case, which is I'm just going to take you out of this land that I promised you because you're not worthy uh, to stay there. I'm only going to bless you in the land if you're obedient. If you're disobedient, uh, then I'm going to take you completely out of the land. Now, when you look down to verse 40, we have the resolution. See, previous to this, you have the uh, promise starting in about verse uh, 28 that if they are completely disobedient, then they will end up in cannibalism uh, because they're going to be under under uh, foreign domination and military defeat. They'll end up eating the flesh of your sons and eating the flesh of your daughters. And God lays out the whole judgment, ending up with verse 33, I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. That's the fifth uh, cycle of discipline. Now, in verse 40, we read how they recover. If they confess their sins, this is what the uh, New King James says, if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me and that they also have walked contrary to me. And I didn't get verse uh, 41 up on from the King James there, but let me read it to you. 
that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt. Now, I would suggest that everybody here has either New King James or an NASB and some of you have an NIV and you don't want to admit it. But um, you have if there. If is not in the original. There is no conditional particle in the Hebrew. There is no temporal particle. There's a few versions that translate when. There's no temporal particle in the Hebrew. This is a statement of future fact using the future um, imperfect tense in, in the Hebrew. And it should be translated like this. That and they could be verse forty starts with a with a vowel consecutive, which is the Hebrew uh, conjunction and and if they confess, uh, excuse me, not if there's no if there and they shall confess. It is a clear statement of fact that when I take them out of the land and they go through all of this and they've gone through all this discipline and they will confess. It is it's prophetic. It's a definite statement that in the future they will confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in that they trespassed against me by which they were hostile to me. When I, the Lord says, in turn have been hostile to them and have removed them into the land of their enemies. Now I want you to watch that verbiage there. God says, I'm going to be hostile to them. Daniel is going to read this and he's going to confess the sins of the nation in Daniel 9, which we're going to look at in a minute. And he uses this same verbiage recognizing that God is an enemy of Israel in their carnality. When I in turn have been hostile to them and have removed them into the land of their enemies, then at last shall their obdurate heart humble itself and they shall atone. Actually, it's not the word atone. Uh, New King James translates make amends. It's actually they shall make restitution. They shall make restitution. And that's exactly what had to happen in the when Israel went out under the fifth cycle of discipline in 586, they had to make restitution for those 70 Sabbath sabbatical years that they had violated. So they had to go out and they had to give the land rest for those 70 years. That's what it means when it says they shall atone or they shall make amends for their iniquity. And then verse, that should be 42. Uh, verse 42 says, Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, I will also remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. So it's a definite promise there that they will confess what? Their iniquity. Notice there's no mention of of, uh, remorse here. There's no mention of repentance here. It is simply the admission of guilt if you take the word at its core value. Now, what we're going to see is that when you get to Daniel 9... And then we look at Ezra 10, where we have these two prayers of confession in the Old Testament. They are very grieved. They put on sackcloth and ashes, and they wail, and because the Jews are very demonstrative people. But it hurt to be kicked out of Jerusalem. And they're mourning the fact that they disobeyed God and they lost the land. It's extremely emotional. The point I'm making is it's not wrong for them to be emotional. What's wrong is when emotion is thought to impress God. That's what's wrong. Because there are times when God severely disciplines us. And we go through some real hellacious stuff in life because of our own disobedience to God. And when we confess, it is emotional. And we're sorrowful. And we grieve that we committed those sins. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's not what brings about the forgiveness. Emotion may or may not be there. But it is not what is efficacious. What is efficacious is confessing the sin. That's what's stated in Leviticus 26, 40. 40 to 42. Now, let's go to uh, Daniel chapter 9. We just have five minutes left, so we won't have time to look at the Ezra passage. But let's look at Daniel just to see this. The reason I'm doing this is if we want to understand what confession prayer is, then let's see how a confession prayer is made in Scripture. Is this a prayer of rep- where there is repentance in the sense of, of saying, well, we're never going to do this again? 
Is this a prayer where there is a, uh, a lot of uh, remorse in order to impress God with the genuineness or sincerity of the confession? There is remorse there, but it is not to impress God with the genuineness of the confession because the confession is, is extremely genuine. Now, as we look at um, Daniel 9, I want to take these in chronological order, and this is the first of the prayers. Daniel is aware of the prophecy in Jeremiah 25, 11, and 12 that God was going to discipline the nation for a period of 70 years. And what has happened is he has studied Jeremiah, and he has the scroll with him. As he studies Jeremiah, he realizes that the time's about up. Because he, he knows the chronology. So we read in verse 1, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. This is about 538 B.C. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face. This is application of doctrine. I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Now, the, this whole thing with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes was a sign of mourning. I don't have time to go through all the passages, but when, when there's a death, when, some, when you're sorrowful, when you're grieving, this was how the Jews culturally expressed it, is that they would put on sackcloth, and they would put these ashes on them, and they would... Uh, Fast, they would go without food because they were demonstrating what was going on in their soul, the sorrow that was there and the grief. Verse 4, And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. There's our word, Yada, Y-A-D-A-H, in the Hiphil stem. I made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him, and with those who keep his commandments. Notice he directs it to God, and he's immediately going back to what? To the covenant. This prayer is totally based on Leviticus 26. He says, We have sinned and committed iniquity. We've done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. That's the confession. He's stating exactly what Israel did in terms of violating the covenant. He said, Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame a face as it is this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those near and far by, goes on and says, O Lord, to us belongs shame a face, in verse 8, because we have sinned against you. And then let's uh, skip down to verse 11. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, Leviticus 26, the servant of God has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster. So he's talking about the divine discipline that they went through. And in verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. See, that word turn is the Hebrew word shuv, which is sometimes translated repent. In the Greek Septuagint, it was epistrepho, which means to, you're going in one direction and turn in another direction. But this is separate from the confession. It is the, the confession had to be made, but then they also had to turn from their ways of wrongdoing. If they confessed, there would be a restoration of fellowship, but there would not be a return to the land unless they quit doing what they were doing, which was wrong. They had to be moved from being disobedient to being obedient. Otherwise, God was not going to take them back into the land. So that's the point I'm making is that confession simply restores that relationship with our, with our Father. That's not a growth issue. That's a relational issue. But repentance has to do with changing our behavior so that we are growing 
in the Christian life. It doesn't just happen. God the Holy Spirit doesn't just zap you. You walk by the Spirit, but He doesn't take over your volition. He doesn't make the decisions for you. We have to make decisions to apply the Word and not do the things that we want to do, but we do that in the power of God the Holy Spirit. Now, as you go on and read through the rest of this prayer in Daniel 9 down to verse 19, Daniel's confession is the admission of their wrongdoing and that they have sinned, verse 15, they've done wickedly, and then he calls upon God to treat them uh, to treat them in grace. There's no mention of repentance in the sense that I need to repent in order to get forgiven. The confession is what brought about the forgiveness. The repentance had to do with the fact that they're not going to get the blessing unless they're obedient. That was always part of the all the covenants was that you don't get the blessing unless you're obedient. And it won't be until Jesus comes back that they're obedient, have an obedient generation, and then they will receive the blessing of the possession of the land. Okay, that gives us an idea of what confession is from that passage. We'll look at a couple of more next time and then tie some interesting things together when we get into, uh, into the New Testament, especially the Gospels. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded that the sin in our lives is to be taken seriously and that it clearly breaches our rapport and our fellowship with you and that it is, even though uh, by simply admitting and acknowledging our sins, we have a complete restoration of fellowship, that's not the end of the process. There is an ongoing process whereby we have to learn to abide in Christ and to walk by the Spirit and to be consistently obedient in the same direction. And that above all, your grace always reigns, that you recognize that we will fail at times. Uh, Sometimes we will fail egregiously, but yet you have made a perfect provision in that all of our sins are paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross and you have been propitiated with relation to all of our sins and so that we can have forgiveness by simply admitting or acknowledging our sin to you. We thank you for your grace and how wonderful it is not to be under the burden of legalism or religion. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.